The title for this morning's talk is The Song of the Ages. Anybody like to sing? Yeah, we had some good music this morning. I like that. And uh, before we begin, let me give you these two texts just to kind of set the course for where we're headed here. The Bible makes very clear that when we become Christ's, that we are called to conquer. As an example of that, let me give you these two texts. Romans 8 verse 37 tells us, We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And again, in Revelation 21, verse 7, He that overcometh, same word as conquers, He that conquers shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Who here wants to be a son, or as the case may be, a daughter of God? All right. Well, by implication, you need to conquer. Now, if you're like me, I'm a very logical person. So if someone says to get from A to B, or to get, to get to this destination, this is what you want, then I want to know, well, how? So if we're called to conquer, I want to know what I'm supposed to conquer, and I want to know how I conquer. If I know that, then, then we're in good shape. So let's see what we can learn from the following folks right here. They have an experience. These are conquerors. I figure this is a good place to learn from. Revelation 14, verse 1, John records, I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Then the verse that we had for our reading, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the four and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. And it continues, verse four: These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God. And to the Lamb, and verse 5, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Now, if you read about these people right here, these are the 144,000, and a statement that you all may be familiar with. If not, it's a good one to know. We may not know every detail about the 144,000, but we should strive with all of our might to what? Yeah, be among the 144,000. That's right. Okay. And that makes sense. We're called to conquer. They're conquerors. So let's strive to be among them. But again, the question is, um, how? Well, I think one clue is in the text. The verse that we had this morning, verse 3, it said, they sung as it were a new song before the throne. I think part of the, the key to victory here is to understand this new song that they're singing here. It is interesting that this group of overcomers is, is singing It's not what I always associate with conquerors, warriors, right? But again, in Revelation, just uh, uh, the very next chapter, you read about some folks and they're singing again. Notice in Revelation 15, it's very similar. Verse 2, it says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, And over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having, there it is again, the harps of God. 
very similar image. It seems to be presenting it just from a slightly different angle, but it's pretty much the same event we just saw. Verse 3, And this time they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Notice right here, it says that this is the, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Whereas before it was referred to as the new song. Okay. And in verse 4, they conclude by saying, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. All right. Now, as far as what we are told about these songs here, in the Great Controversy, it actually speaks about both this new song of Revelation 14 and this song of the um, Moses and the Lamb in Revelation 15. She rolls them together, which seems very fitting because they are, in fact, thinking about the same thing. Notice what she says here. And they sing, quote, a new song before the throne, a song which no man can learn save the 140 and 4,000. That's Revelation 14. It is the song of Moses and the Lamb. Revelation 15. A song of deliverance. None but the 144,000 can learn that song, for it is the song of their experience, an experience such as no other company I've ever had. Now, I am going to suggest that this experience they have is the experience of conquering. And guess what? It says no other company has ever had this. There has been no other company of people in the world. There have been individuals, but not companies of people that have experienced what it is to conquer. Based on just the overall Bible message, what, what is it that God wants us to conquer? Okay, I heard, let's see, I think I heard sin, right? Okay, anything else come to mind? Self, yeah, where there's sin, self rears its ugly head, right? Okay, yep. Satan comes in the mix, right? There's three S's. Satan, sin, and self. They're all rolled together. God wants us to conquer those. You know, we are to resist the devil and he will flee from us. That's good, right? Now, the song of Moses, that's that song of deliverance. When, when the Israelites were taken by God out of Egypt, he rescued them, he delivered them. Exodus 15, you read, uh, we even have a song that we sing here at Wash the Hills about the horse and the rider he has cast into the sea, right? That's the song of deliverance. That's, that's what they're singing about, deliverance. On the other hand, it was called the song of the Lamb as well. See if you can follow this. In the book of Revelation, Jesus, when he's referred to as the one who marries his lamb, uh, the, um, the bride, excuse me, he's referred to as the Lamb, the one who died for her. So he, he demonstrated that perfect love that we're called to have for our wives. So the lamb is the one who marries his bride, but his bride is the one she has the law of liberty on her heart. So again, this idea of deliverance. And so she is free to obey her, her lamb husband, Jesus, perfectly. So the song of Moses is the song of deliverance. The song of the lamb is one who has become free, free to obey her Lord perfectly. So again, deliverance. And I dare say we all need this deliverance. That's why the Bible was written, so that we could learn about it. And we need to learn, like the hymn says, to trust and obey, for there is no other what? 
There is no other way, right? Jesus is the way. Uh, we all need to learn, I think, this. To sing and shout the victory. Wouldn't it be nice? We have a song about that, but wouldn't it be nice if we could actually, it would really true. We'd say, yes, I know what victory is like. And though we're not going to go into the details of it today, there's been a time where I've shared, it turns out, if you were to go to Psalm 96, it says this is the new song. If you were to, to scan it, it's not that long a psalm, you will discover what the new song is, the song of victory. Some of you may possibly remember Psalm 96, actually, when you read it, it turns out it reveals the first angel's message. That's the song of victory. Hmm. And you can also make an argument for the other two angels' messages. It's, it's the three angels' messages. That's the song of victory the 144,000 are singing. That's the message this church is to be giving to the world, right? So. We're to be singing before the world. We're to be singing. We're showing the world what victory looks like so that they will want to join the winning army and become victors in Christ. That's, that's a good thing. Only thing is we need to know kind of the song lyrics if we're going to actually sing the song. We need to come into unity of the faith if we're going to sing, right? Because we can all have our different parts, but if we're not in harmony, it's going to sound like, well, garbage, right? So that's part of the, the unity of the faith, is learning how to sing. This question, though, is how, do, how are we supposed to learn to sing this song? Is it by memorizing the three angels' message, you think? Some of you might, might have it memorized. That doesn't necessarily mean it's internalized, but it would be a good first step. How do we learn to sing this song? Well. To my mind, as I've thought about this, it seems to me that this has got to be the greatest song that's ever written. If we can finally say, wow, messed up as my life has been, I finally learned what it is to be victorious in Jesus. This is, this is worth knowing how to sing. And so I really would like to know how, how to sing it. All of God's biddings are what? Okay, so if he's calling us to conquer, he's calling us to sing the song in harmony with each other, then surely it must be possible. So it must be that if we study the scriptures, surely we can find out how to sing the song. And so as I looked at it more and more, I couldn't get away from the possibility that maybe if this is the greatest song ever written, maybe we ought to look at the greatest of all songs. Does the Bible tell us what the greatest of all songs is? Yeah, they're very good. Dr. Carlos has it. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, yeah. I think maybe studying that song, don't worry, we're not going to go through all 117 verses here today, but just, just enough to kind of see what might be there for us if we do spend some time with the Lord teaching us from the Song of Songs here. So let's look at just a, a little bit of material, just a few verses from only the first chapter today. Now, hopefully this will this will get our attention here. So yes, your Bible may call it the Song of Solomon. Some call it the Song of Songs. Either way, in the first verse of the book that has both, it says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. So call it whatever you wish. When you look at it right there, that expression, Song of Songs, tells us something. If I talk about the King of Kings, what do I mean? I mean like the king, right? The greatest of kings. Yep. 
If I talk about the Holy of Holies, what does that mean? That's the most holy place. Okay. So, same kind of thinking. The Song of Songs would thereby be what? Yeah. It's a Hebrew way of saying it's the greatest song there is. Okay. That's why I'm thinking maybe it's, it's at least reasonable that we should look here. Now, you may have heard certain things about this. Some of you may not have really looked at this much. Others of you may say, oh, yeah, I've heard things about it. Um, some of you may be saying, well, I've read it, and boy, I don't understand a word of it. Okay, well, that's a good reason to study. Maybe we study together, iron sharpening iron. We can learn that, oh, this is how the song goes. Uh, others of you have may heard that, well, actually, this is a very um, steamy you know, song. Let me ask you this. Do you think God puts things in the Bible that are meant to make us think worldly and uh, think dirty things? You think that's the... What would be the point? That's, that's what we're trying to overcome. I don't think that as we near the end of the world's history, God says, you know what? In order to achieve final victory, I need you to think trash. That didn't make any sense to me. So I don't buy into the argument that this is a... To understand this song, we need to think... Read all sorts of dirty things into it. And I think when we take a look at these few verses today, I think it'll be like, aha, this makes a whole lot more sense than some of the other competing ideas out there. That's what I hope. So let's just jump ahead. Notice here in verse 5 of chapter 1, in case you don't know much about Song of Solomon, it's Solomon going back and forth with his bride. They're speaking together in the book. And in verse 5, she's speaking, and she says this about herself. I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. Now, do you know what comely means? We don't usually use that word in modern English. What does that mean? Yeah, beautiful, lovely, attractive, right. So she's saying, I am black. Some say and, either but or and, attractive. Okay, that's true. Now, does it draw attention to being black right here? Why might that be? Well, you understand Solomon, if you read this book at one level, it's talking about his own experience. Do you know who his first wife was? Yeah, it doesn't tell us her name, but yeah, the first wife, the one that he should have just married and that would have been it, but he decided to marry about a thousand more. But his first wife was Egyptian. And there can be all different colors, but I think based on this, we can safely assume that yes, she was on the darker end of the spectrum. Okay. Moses, his wife, a Midianite woman, right? On the darker side of things here. And so that's, that's one way to understand it. However, things get a little bit more interesting if I put the whole verse up there. She says, I am black, but comely, attractive. O you daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, black as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Okay. Now let me ask this here. Have you ever seen someone and you said, you know what? That person there... They're about as dark as a curtain. I mean, if you're like me, I'd probably look at that and say, well, I, I don't know what that means. Is that, I don't, I mean, is that an insult or is that, uh, what is that, right? I don't know. And so, um, this is where it, it helps to let scripture explain itself. There's a lot of puzzling expressions. One that we won't look at today, but... And again, one that illustrates to my mind that the book is not some, you know, tawdry book. You know, it also says here that it uh, describes the, the, the bride as having hair like the flock of goats. Have you ever said that to anybody? 
No, right? I mean, you, you probably wouldn't even know what to say. You'd say, I'm not sure whether to say thank you or I just don't understand. I mean, I, right? So again, I, but it, at any rate, it's nothing that's steamy, right? It, it, you might just say it's just confusing. But the idea here is that it's in the Bible, so the Bible probably explains itself. You know, here a little, there a little, right? Maybe if we just say, all right, Lord, I don't understand this, but can you show me where we see tents and curtains? Maybe there's some other texts that say, oh, okay, now I get it. And maybe in those contexts, those make sense, and therefore we understand it in this one. And so I went through that exercise, and there's actually not... The number of verses is not too hard. So here, this I think is helpful. Uh, we, we're going to look for verses that talk about tents and curtains. Now, some of you, the wheels already might be rolling. But here's one I think is particularly nice, especially the way they translated this first word here. In Jeremiah 4, verse 20, this is the weeping prophet here. Notice how he talks about my tabernacle is spoiled and all my cords are broken. My children are gone forth of me and they are not. There is none to stretch forth my tent anymore and to set up my curtains. Okay, you see tent and curtains there, right? But based on the verse right there, any kind of idea of what we're talking about here? Ah, sanctuary, okay. There are other verses, but I figure if we can do it with one verse, we'll just stick with one verse. Is the sanctuary an important doctrine? Yeah, we know it is, right? That's the stock answer. In fact, it is the doctrine that sets us apart from all other churches. There are other churches that observe the Sabbath, that teach it. There are other churches that have a, a form of a health message, not ours, but, you know, a health message. But there's only one church in the world that is teaching the truth, the importance of the sanctuary, and that would be this church. And in fact, I am fully persuaded that all the other teachings of the Bible, all the, the various fundamental beliefs we have, rightly understood, have their place in the sanctuary. They get their, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, their, their significance, understood in that light. Could it be that the Song of Solomon, as, as, as uh, debated as it is, its meaning, and people scratching their head thinking, I just don't know what it is, could it be that maybe understanding it in light of the sanctuary Suddenly, everything will become clear, and it's like, oh, that's what it's been telling us all these centuries. Let's check it out, though. Uh, in verse 4, the bride says, The king has brought me into his chambers. Okay, his chambers. Let's see, what is that? Well, let's, let's look for chambers here. Again, uh, there's not too many verses that we have to sift through in the Bible, but let me put two that I think are just pretty much plain as day here. See what you think. In Judges chapter 15, the story of Samson. It says, uh, Samson said, I will go into my wife into the chamber. Does that not suggest what room we're talking about? Talking about his wife in a chamber. What room do you think we're talking about? Okay. Yeah, bedroom. This is not too hard. And then to be super explicit, in Joel, in the last days, by the way, which means it would apply to us, notice this. There is a, a pronouncement that goes forth saying, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, Assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber. I, I think that's pretty plain. The bridegroom would be associated with one room, bride chamber. And the, uh, the bride out of her closet. Okay, so yes, 
Um, and it's not too surprising that we might have a bedroom in view in Song of Solomon. That does seem to fit with the idea of marriage. But maybe bedroom and somehow sanctuary, maybe that rolls together. But let, let's see here. Skipping ahead, verse 12 of chapter 1, Song of Solomon. It says this. It talks about while the king is sitting at his table, my spikenard, the bride speaking, sends forth the smell thereof. A lot of details there. We're not looking at everything this morning. It turns out, though, as I go through this, I, I puzzle. You'll notice that the Song of Solomon is translated very differently amongst all the translations. It doesn't actually say the king is sitting. There is no mention of a table here. That may sound surprising to you, but it's the absolute truth. The word that is translated sitting at his table refers to things around you. And so you might translate it a little more literally like this. While the king was in the area round about, my spikenard sends forth the smell. And you might think, well, now how did that clear anything up? Well, by itself, it didn't. You're still looking at it, probably going, what is, where is he going with this? Well, again, if we look for this word, misabiv, and you just see, well, how is that used in Scripture? Guess what? It's the same idea. It turns out if you go to the description of Solomon's temple, 1 Kings chapter 6, lo and behold, we have that very word, and there it is translated in a way that's pretty clear. 1 Kings 6.25, it says that he, referring to Solomon, carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers within and without. Hmm. That's the sanctuary again. Last I checked, the sanctuary is not a place that I think of as anything dirty. Isn't it? It's a holy place, right? Perfectly holy. It's where God dwells. It's where he's asking us to dwell. If this song is about the most holy place experience, do you think there's anything that's filthy and steamy going on there? No, I don't think God wants us to think about it that way at all. The last verse of chapter 1 of Song of Solomon says this, The beams of our house are cedar, and our rafters of fur. Now, early on in my Christian experience, I would have read that and said, well, okay, he's telling me he's made it out of two particular kinds of wood. Very well. As I advanced on my walk, as I became an Adventist and started thinking more about the sanctuary, I read this, and as soon as I ring it, or read it, bells go off on my head. Ding! When I see cedar and I see fur, that's very particular kinds of wood. And guess where you meet them? 1 Kings 6.15, same chapter, Solomon's temple. He built the walls of the house within with boards of cedar, and he covered the floor of the house with planks of fir. What's the Song of Songs about? This is about the sanctuary. And I love this one right here. Song of Solomon 1 verse 14. Now, this one is definitely a real uh, stumper. It says, My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor. Okay. Anybody ever told someone that was near and dear to you that they were like a, a cluster of camphor? You probably know what a cluster is. Does anybody know what camphor is? No, I'm getting blank looks here. That's what I expected. Isn't it like what? Did you say Vicks? Oh, I see. Well, I th okay. I think you are kind of on the right track there. It turns out camphor is just a, not a word that people are familiar with. 
So if you look it up, you may say, oh, okay, here's how they suggest we translate it. It's unto me as a cluster of henna blossom. Okay, now how many of you know what a henna blossom is? Yeah, that doesn't help too much either, does it? If we don't have henna going around here, you're thinking, I guess it's a good plant, I don't know, I mean. Well, it turns out that's where if we just look it up, you will discover something. If you look at how this word is translated, they will tell you it means such things as ransom or whatever. It's the word that means atonement. Who do you think this song is about? This is not about the earthly Solomon. His life was in some respects a model of Jesus, in other ways very much not, right? Because you can see how, well, based on his life, maybe he would have some real crazy escapades to write about. But in the sense that he was supposed to mirror Jesus, this song is about Jesus, and it's about his special house. My beloved, Jesus, the ultimate Solomon, is unto me as a cluster of atonement. That's a fascinating word. Uh, certainly in the sanctuary setting, Exodus 25 through 40 gives all those details about the Mosaic tabernacle. It says that the mercy seat is to be a pure gold. Well, the mercy seat really says atonement lid. That's what the word means. Also, did you know this? Those of you that have the uh, sanctuary class with me know this. The rest of you may not. Did you know that you meet with this word in the ark, like Noah's ark? With Noah's ark, it says that you are to pitch it within and without with what? With pitch. It's the same word. Henna blossom. Apparently, whatever this plant is, it must be a very gooey, resinous subject, uh, substance that, you know, would make things watertight. Essentially, you are to pitch it in and without with atonement. Did the boat sink? Was it perfectly sealed? You want to be sealed? You want to be sealed with God, with the atonement He provides, right? There we go. Now the song is starting to make sense. It's using doctrines that we're familiar with. 1 John 2, verse 2. If you read in the King James, it says Jesus is the um, propitiation for our sins. And again, it's one of those words where it's like, man, why couldn't I use a simpler word? Well, it turns out if you look at how that word's used, it means atonement. He is the atonement for our sins. That fits with everything. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of this atonement plant, shall we call it that? This plant that seals. Hmm. There we go. So now, back to victory. Could the secret to victory lie in atonement? There you go. It does, right? What Jesus has done and what he is applying in a very special way during the judgment hour at the end of this world's history. Found in the sanctuary. Ah, there we go. That sounds like maybe that's a song that we need to learn. I don't think we need to learn about, you know, mis, you know misguided sexual conduct. That's the last thing we need, right? In case you haven't noticed, the world is totally mixed up on sex, right? This country especially. We don't need more garbage. God says, let me show you the truth. Um, here's a question for you. Could mastery of the new song that the 144,000 sing the one that we should know, could mastery of that song require us to learn what the Song of Songs is about, the Song of Solomon? Hmm, I think so. Could the Song of Songs really be about the Holy of Holies, the most holy place experience? You see, Jesus wants to seal us, right? 
He says, come into the most holy place. Let me transform you utterly. Seal you with this henna plant, to use it, you know, the expression it uses right there. When that experience is ours, we won't know the moment it happens, but people will be able to tell that something's different. They may not know that that's a sealing experience, but they'll say, you are, you are like light and, uh, what's the word, uh, night and day compared to the world. The day is, the world is in midnight darkness, but you are just shining brightly. Uh, would that transform our understanding think of God's house? We understand the sanctuary and realize, wait a minute, this is the sacred place where God wants to meet with us and utterly transform every aspect of our being. Think about this. The book of Habakkuk, it has this verse, maybe you've seen this one. It says, you know, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Have you ever thought about it like this, though? If we recognize that his holy temple is this special place, this place of intimacy, it's spoken about in the Song of Songs, have you ever thought of it like this? The Lord is in his inner chamber. That's what it talks about there in, um, in Song of Songs. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, he's in that most intimate place, right? You wouldn't you know, go in somebody's bedroom and start you know, whispering around, right? You'd be like, wait, no, this is private territory, right? If, if we understand it like that, then when we read things like this, maybe it takes on a whole new luster. In volume five of the Testimonies, page 491, it says this. From the sacredness which was attached to the earthly sanctuary, Christians may learn how they should regard the, pl the place where the Lord meets with his people. There has been a great change, not for the better, but for the worse, in the habits and customs of the people in reference to religious worship. The precious, the sacred, things which connect us with God are fast losing their hold upon our minds and hearts and are being brought down to the level of common things. The reverence which the people had anciently for the sanctuary where they met with God in sacred service has largely passed away. And then again on the next page, you know, common talking, whispering, laughing should not be permitted in the house of worship, either before or after the service. And, you know, we might think, well, I don't understand. But, but if we consider it as, okay, his sanctuary, he describes it as though it were his personal bedchamber, where he and his wife had that special time together, then it makes sense, right? Because yeah, you don't do that. That's an intimate moment, right? This is a different thing. So that's just another way of looking at it. And so, you know, could it be whenever we are tempted to, uh, as I say, chit-chat in the sanctuary, could it be that it reveals our lack of desire for intimacy with God? We want that, right? There, there's just a, a way to, to think about it. Yeah, could it be that those who are singing the new song, the way that God has always meant it to be sung, could it be that they're able to sing so beautifully because nothing gets in the way with their intimacy with God. They say, no, my beloved wants time with me. I want every moment I can get with him. That's a very positive way to look at it, right? Is that what you want today? Who doesn't want intimacy with Jesus, right? Okay. Absolute perfect intimacy with him? Right. I mean, why would we settle for anything less? He'll give us as much as we're willing, right? Ask and you shall receive. So I would say this then. If that's the case, then let's get to know God. Let us say, I do, to his proposal. He wants us to be his bride, right? Let's say, I do, and learn all we can about his 
inner chamber, the bedroom, the most holy place. I'm excited about that. And see, then we can realize, if we have that, we can realize this right here. It tells us in the same book, different chapter though, page 466 of volume 5 of the Testimonies, it says this. What we make of ourselves in probationary time, that we must remain to all eternity. Death brings disillusion to the body, but it doesn't make any change in the character. The coming of Christ does not change our characters. It only fixes them forever beyond all change. Wow. Why do we have them fix it the way it's supposed to be right now? This is an incredible thing that God's offering us. He's saying there's been nothing like it in the history of the world. But he says, victory is yours. If you will marry me, that is God. He says, I can make everything better. And we can be the means of winning millions that are open. There are people that are so open now because they see the world is so messed up, they're saying nothing's working. And they start seeing the changes. We don't need to be ashamed of it. And they say, wow, this is what I want. They're longing for this. If that's your desire, I invite you right now, let's go ahead. Let's pause for a moment of prayer here, and then we're going to close. You'll have to remind me what our closing song is, but uh, we're going to go ahead and pause for prayer, okay? Father in heaven, you, you are so good to us. And I know for me personally, I long to sing this song. I know intellectually it has to do with character perfection. I know it has to do with your sanctuary. But even so, I know that I'm not, I'm not singing my part perfectly. I want to be able to come in to union with my brothers and sisters here. I want to sing this song the way that you, you want it to be sung, to your glory. You will be glorified in your people. So I pray that you would be pleased to teach us our parts. And that as we study the new song in the Bible, as we study the Song of Solomon, that you will show us more and more clearly the message of the sanctuary and how we find victory in the atonement Jesus has for us there. I pray that will become real for us and that others will be excited. They will see marked changes in our life and say, you have been with Jesus and I want it too. We thank you now. Go with us today. Not only keep us safe, but keep our minds fixed on thee. Show us new and wondrous things out of thy law. And I pray that we can be the, the means you use to win a lost and dying world. We thank you and we praise you, Father, for the sake of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.